This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee, and thank you so much for tuning in. Really excited about this one. I have a really impressive person on this show. Definitely embodies the true spirit of being a doc outside the box. My next guest is Dr. Julie Cantor, and she is a physician. She's a lawyer. She's a speaker. She's also an entrepreneur, and she spends the majority of her time teaching, speaking at UCLA School of Law, and she talks about the interplay between medicine ethics, as well as law, which is really a big deal nowadays, definitely with COVID-19, but also even before that with reproductive rights, all of these things really were a big deal and were definitely on center stage. Now, in terms of her, she's been featured in so many different journals and media outlets. She's been featured in the New England Journal of Medicine. She's also been on Good Morning America, CNN, the New York Times, CBS News, as well as the Los Angeles Times. She's also, which is pretty badass, I think, she's also co-authored a brief that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So definitely very accomplished. Now, on this episode, we're going to talk a lot about her journey to being a doc outside the box. But first, we're going to start with a little masterclass on Roe v. Wade, what that means in terms of reproductive rights, as well as the current atmosphere that's out there in terms of pro-Roe v. Wade, as well as against it going to be really interesting to hear how she sets up the stage. Then we're going to learn more about her, her upbringing, as well as why she decided not to practice clinically, but to go into law. And then we're going to verge into entrepreneurship. And we're going to talk about her company called Harlan, which creates high-end work bags for women. We're going to talk about what it's like to create materials that are high-end, having to go all the way to Italy to get this material, and what it's like to create this stuff and market this stuff. So This is going to be a jam-packed episode. We're going to talk about a lot, but I want you all to share this episode with someone who you know would definitely benefit from this. Now, this intro went long enough. Without further ado, I present Dr. Julie Cantor. Let's get it. Hey, Dr. Julie, welcome to Docs Outside the Box. What's up? What's good? Hey, so good to be here. Very excited. This is something that we've been trying to plan for a while. And um, I'm glad we've finally been able to get connected. Yeah, so great. And your application, you know, you sent me a link and I was like, oh, that's really helpful. I can get organized (laughs) immediately. 
Yeah, well, you know, for the audience who doesn't know, like I've kind of revamped the way in which I ask guests to come on the show just because it makes it a lot easier for you to kind of give your information to bios and things like that. That took a while to do. So that's a little bit of some systems work. So thank you very much for being impressed with that. But I have you on the show because I'm really impressed with what you're doing. It's really amazing. Literally, your degrees are like an alphabet soup. Yeah, like oh, you're very accomplished. You. <laughs> BA, MA from Stanford, JD from UC Berkeley, MD from Yale University. Whoop, whoop. It just keeps going. We're here to talk about your career and what you're doing from an entrepreneurship standpoint, which I think is pretty amazing. And oftentimes, I like to start off with softballs with my guests just to kind of butter them up and then go right into it. But with you, I mean, come on now, you've been in multiple journals, you've co authored a brief for the US Supreme Court. You can handle all this stuff. So I just want to get straight to the point. I want to ask you about some stuff because, I mean, you're an expert on health policy. You're an expert on health law, reproductive rights. There's a lot of ish going on right now in the United States, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's kind of crazy, you mentioned reproductive rights. So I created this seminar that I teach at UCLA Law now. I created it when I was actually in medical school at Yale. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was needed. And Yale had a program called the Sophomore Seminar Series where they would hire the college, Yale College would set up interviews with the various different colleges that they have there, the way that they're set up. And if a particular college hired you, you would teach the seminar through that college. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting opportunity. So I did it back then. And that was in like the O-somethings, like O-3 or O-2 or O-4 in there. And the thing that kind of never ceases to amaze me is how the field keeps moving and changing and how honestly it's always in the news. Like when I teach it now and I'm teaching at UCLA Law this semester, actually, and I always start my class off with a section called in the news and there is never like a break. You know, it's never like, oh, there's nothing to say this week, so we'll just move on. I mean, that's the thing about this field is that there is always something. And, you know, some people would say kind of for better or for worse, but, you know, it has not stopped moving in however long, hundreds of years, certainly 50 years and in the decade or two plus two decades that I've been working in this field. So with the way how things are going, people say, well, it's probably constantly evolving, but is that really a good comp? Like, is it really evolving or is it regressing? Like, seriously, like with the current atmosphere, I'm going to get straight to the point, like based off of you, what you know, how you see things are happening, is there a chance that possibly Roe v. Wade may be rolled back or? You know, your question about is it evolving? And I mean, it makes me think, is it devolving? Right. I kind of think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote about the arc of justice and, you know, that it's bending, or sorry, the moral arc of the universe is bending toward justice. Over time. Yes. And I always thought we're always moving forward. We're always heading in the forward direction. And I think there's a fair argument to be made that it's not necessarily that case if you believe in sort of human rights types of principles of autonomy, of bodily integrity, of those kinds of issues. So certainly on just the legal front, I mean, when Roe was handed down, although it was a 7-2 decision, some people would say that it galvanized the opposition and that it's obviously been relitigated and relitigated in different cases and different iterations ever since. A lot of people who study this are saying, would the Supreme Court, does it have the votes to just come in and wholesale and say, in the spirit of you know some of the other cases that it is just outright overturned, that we're going to outright overturn it? People tend now not to think that, even though the idea is that, for example, Justice Gorsuch, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, he said that his judicial role model was Wizard White, Byron White, and Byron White was one of the two dissenters from Roe. Mm, I see what you're saying. Okay. 
So Byron White didn't dissent necessarily because he had any issue with abortion itself, though he may very well have had that. But he had this issue that people in law talk about as strict constructionism or originalism. And if it's not actually in the text of the Constitution, then it belongs to the states. And so the concern there is that they didn't want the court, so to speak, to act as a super legislature and make up its own rules, so to speak. But, you know, other people would say that this is being able to have bodily integrity and make decisions about your own body is part and parcel, a part of liberty and freedom. And the word liberty is in the 14th Amendment. And if you don't have control of your own body, if the state can come in and tell you what to do with your body or who to donate body parts to, that you're not free. And in fact, there are cases about people having issues with the state saying, well, you need to donate your corneas after you're dead or your family needs to. Cases where the courts have said, no, no, you can't do that because of liberty. We're talking about corpses there. So we really have to focus on that women are human beings who have autonomy. We're talking about adults, generally speaking, in this instance. And it gets back into that medical ethics principle that doctors are really familiar with. You know, you kind of have those big four non-maleficence, do no harm, you have justice, you have beneficence, and then you have autonomy. And to me, this is all part and parcel of autonomy. I mean, why do you have informed consent? You're asking people for permission to literally touch or, as you know, in surgery to cut into. And while, of course, as you know, in trauma, there are exceptions, the emergency exception comes to mind. The whole idea is that if you're going to be in a free society, that you have control over your body. And so to me, that autonomy principle is absolutely critical. Wow. That's why we have you on the show. (laughs) I love the answer. I love the answer. To even hear things about possibly in the future what doctors may be getting jailed for, you know, performing abortions in the future, possibly. I just want to get your point. Like, what are the implications for society? What are all these things? Not only just like, how do they affect doctors? But like, what does that mean in terms of how we get care? Not for people like us, but like people who need it the most. Right. I mean, for people like us, I think you could be like, hey, I'm going to call up my friend. and Right. We are part of the community, like we know people, we know people who know people. But the real issue is what if you don't know people or you don't have the means to like, oh, I'll just get on a plane and go to, you know, fill in the blank country or something, which is something that would happen, for example, in the 60s when abortion was criminalized and it really came down to what they had were these therapeutic abortion boards in hospitals where doctors would get together and say, okay, yes, she needs an abortion because the pregnancy is threatening to her life. And then some people would kind of slip in. It wasn't maybe their life, but maybe it was like mental health or there were kind of issues like that where, again, back to those medical ethics principles, that principle of justice were situated people treated similarly. But to answer your question, like, well, what happens? And it would be a rollback. I mean, you did have criminalized abortion back in the day and the day wasn't so long ago. And there have been people who've like, you know, really written about women doing self-abortions or having unsafe abortions. And there were wards in hospitals where it was like the septic abortion ward, you know, they'd come in and you'd think, oh, what is that protruding from between her legs? And you think, okay, well, baby, is that a uterus? And it turns out it's actually intestines because the instruments were, they're not surgeons. generally, Exactly. And then you have people dying. And so some people would just say, look, from a public health perspective, abortion has gone on since forever, since back in the times of the ancient Greeks. You can look back in history. And if you read Roe versus Wade, the actual case, and you read the whole thing, not sort of a truncated version that you might find like in a law school case book, but you just pull it. 
and you read it, the Justice Blackman who wrote the opinion talks about exactly this long history. And putting that aside, if you're from a public health perspective, you could take a position where you say, look, this has gone on forever. It will go on forever. We're really going to be harming people who are at the margins, you know, or the most marginalized people who don't have a strong testing relationship with the medical community or people who aren't of means or people who are desperate in one way or another who are going to be forced into making unsafe choices. And those are the people who are literally going to suffer and die. And so from a public health perspective, you could say, look, this is going to go on. It's always gone on. It's going to go on anyway. And so we need to make sure that people are safe and that it doesn't impact their health and their health care. And to be sure, there's an opinion out there that's like, well, if they die, that's kind of their fault because they were doing a bad thing. So, you know, again, some of this, we're just going to have to agree to disagree because if you have a particular, you know, I'm not going to move you off of that belief necessarily. And if I talk about autonomy, I'm not going to move you. But hopefully we can at least get to a point where people would say, well, do you want people to be safe? And especially, you know, if you think about, well, this is a woman who, let's say she has other children, you really want to punish her in a way that she leaves the family motherless. You can kind of move on those issues. But, you know, you're right. I think if it's criminalized, first of all, there are going to be states that California, for example, New York, that have a legal access to it. So we may see people coming here for care. I'm in California, so that's why I say here, but coming to going to those types of places for care. And we may see that there's, you know, a chilling effect on physicians who were willing to assist or participate who are like, you know what, I have a life to lead, a mortgage to pay. I don't want to be a test right. case. I don't want to get arrested. Or violent harm, possibly. Yeah, or violent harm. And you have these kind of amazing physicians like Willie Parker, for example, who really feels like it's his moral duty as a religious man to give women access in places where there are very few, if any, practitioners and where there is intimidation because his belief, and you can read this in his book or he's in a number of documentaries about this issue, he believes in that idea of autonomy and that women should be able to choose their life's path. But if the state starts to get back involved and criminalize, I mean, that's exactly what people who are against abortion or believe that it is not part of healthcare, that it's something different. That's what they want. They want people to be intimidated. They don't want people to have access. And, you know, you can look elsewhere. Jack Hitt, who's this terrific writer, wrote a piece in 2006 in the New York Times, and I can give you the link in a bit if you'd like. It was about basically what happens in a country where abortion is completely criminalized, where women's uteruses are literally crime scenes. And you can think, oh, that sounds like a Margaret Atwood novel or something, but it actually is going on. And he talks about what happens and women being in prison for 30 years and what goes on there. So you can read about in real time what happens when a society criminalizes abortion completely and how things roll out. That's what I was going to ask you about. How are we comparing to other countries? Like, are we considered progressive? Are we conservative within those realms with health law just in general or? Different countries have, obviously, all around the world, different ways of looking at this. And some are more, you know, along well, the lines of like, like industrialized, maybe industrialized countries. I'm sorry. Maybe I should be more specific. I apologize. No, 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 not at all. I think we're more on the regressive conservative. And there are a lot of countries where this is like part of healthcare. It's either on the liberty end where like this is part of people's bodily integrity and their autonomy. Like you have a fetus's it's not like Horton hears a who, the Dr. Seuss book. You're not sitting on an egg and then you can get somebody else to do it. We're talking about literally in your body. And so the idea from a bodily autonomy point of view and a bodily integrity point of view is you make decisions about your body. And, you know, a lot of places, I think they vary in their restrictions. 
you know, we have to do sort of a comparative look. But just speaking about the United States, that's kind of where we are, is that there have been challenges and challenges and challenges. And the idea is, you know, a lot of people, certainly from states like Louisiana, states like Mississippi, a number of states, they really want it gone. They want Roe and its progeny completely wiped out and that right gone. And whether you want to say it's because it's not, quote unquote, in the Constitution, it's not part of liberty. Roe versus Wade turned more on privacy. And this idea of, well, the word privacy isn't in the Constitution, but if you kind of look at the whole document and you think about what the framers were trying to do, that you get there. And so some people have a problem with that. Justice Ginsburg has said that it's more about equality and the equal protection of the laws for both men and women, meaning that in her view, women have a right to participate in the social sphere, in the economic sphere. And if you don't have the ability to make choices about your reproductive capacity, then you can't really participate. So there are a lot of different ways that you can come at it. And I think a lot of people are like, I don't really care how you come at it. I just want it gone and sort of NIMBY, like not in my backyard. Whether that comes from a religious belief, which is the most likely place, then you could say, well, aren't we supposed to keep religion out of the laws? And you could have an argument there. But we'll just, you know, we're going to have to see, but they've done to sort of as their goal is to eliminate access to it as much as possible. And they've been successful in that in certain states. You know, the reason why I brought that up first is obviously you've dealt with harder questions than what I've given you. But literally, I wanted to put on showcase like your expertise, the knowledge that you have. It's really impressive, even just the intricacies and the complexities of just different arguments and so forth. It's really impressive. And, you know, so I want to take a step back and kind of get to know you a little bit and know about your history and why you're a doc outside the box. So tell us about this journey. Like when exactly did you go to medical school in relation to getting your law degree and so forth? Let's hear more about that. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. I have to go back a bit. So I think I was always certainly interested in health. I came from a background of health care. My dad was a children's dentist and you know, I would hang out with, it's one of those where like you hang out with your mom or your dad and you go to the hospital, like that kind of thing. So I had a little bit of that. At some point, it was during the Clinton administration, so I'm dating myself. The head of FDA was David Kessler and he had both an MD and a JD. And I remember thinking, because I was really interested in this intersection of both, there were so many areas that interested me that it was like hard to kind of pick a lane, so to speak. And when I saw him or learned about him, I thought, well, that really makes so much sense that that's what I'm going to do. So I ended up applying to medical school and law school simultaneously. I took, I think in the same year, I took the MCAT and then I took the LSAT. You know, I was just like, all right, we'll just say, yeah, we'll just do this. That doesn't happen too often. (laughs) (laughs) The LSAT's actually a really fun test. I recommend it. It's like a logic puzzle. So I'm going to pass on that, but (laughs) I guess the audience is listening. Like it may want to try it, but just for fun. I mean, it's just a kick. So I did that and then I applied and I ended up deferring from medical school for largely to be honest and just to be totally kind of open about it for financial reasons. Because if I went to Berkeley at the time, I could pay all the tuition and some of the room and board stuff with a federal loan that had no interest. And so I could carry it through medical school without accruing interest. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll do that first. And then Yale was really gracious in letting me like defer. And then I decided to go to Yale, and that was part of the reasoning there. I'm going to put you on a spot. Oh, no. So you, you got your MD, <laughs> you got your JD. Which one was harder? 
Oh, for me, it was definitely the MD, just the way really? my brain. Yeah, yeah well, we'll the way my right. yeah, I mean, the way my brain works. To me, if you're really great at learning languages, I think like if you're like, oh, I speak 18 languages, it's no problem. I can you know translate. But to me, that was what medicine was like. It was kind of like sitting down and having to almost learn this entire language without the context of stories and history and arguments, and it was definitely harder for me. But, you know, for some people, it's like no big deal. So I think it's just the way like your brain works. And I wouldn't say that that maybe it would apply to everybody. But for me, it was definitely super hard. Now, after that process, did you decide to practice clinically at all? Did you do residency at all? Did you go right into law? That's a great question. I didn't. I went right into law because I had published an article at the time about conscientious subjection in medicine. And I was doing a lot of grand rounds about things. And I thought, oh, well, this is really interesting and fun. And my thinking at the time was I had an opportunity to work in a law firm and really start kind of contributing in that way. And frankly, again, the financial was in my mind so I could start making money at kind of a market level, so to speak, as opposed to a residency level. And I knew that had I, I mean, sorry. We're keeping it real. We're keeping it 100 on the show. I love it. Okay. You know, really sorry, but for real. And then I did have, you know, the loans and all of that that I did end up accruing because I did take out loans to go to medical school. And I knew that that was like in the back of my mind. And I thought I would become an academic physician and I wanted to do something with law and medical ethics. And so I was thinking, well, if really I'm going to be practicing like a day a week, does that make sense? So there was a lot of that analysis. And to be fair, there was always the financial in my mind. And that definitely animated some of my decision making. See, I think that it's really important for us to just have these real conversations. And for us to know exactly, you know, maybe you were on the fence about making a certain decision, but, you know. Well, and to be fair, actually, if we're just going to be real. Come on, Dr. Julie, we keep it real on this show. Come on. I mean, I'm with you. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be, just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is immaculate. And you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. You know, there were also the considerations of, you know, like I'm very attuned to issues of like fairness and justice. And I was really, I thought that the residency and the hours and the way that people were treated within residency was problematic for me. I thought there was a lot of what I viewed as institutionalized bullying. And I was like, wow, you know, you really got to sign on for this. And I do understand certainly in surgery, the idea that training people who are on the front lines and lifesavers and I don't know if there's another way to do it where you could actually do it with kindness as opposed to kind of shaming and bullying. And that's really certainly your area of expertise in terms of having gone through all that. But there was a little bit of that that I was like, I don't know if I want to really put myself through that. 
And then also in academics, I didn't think of this at the time, but now that there's so much talk about gender issues and gender pay gaps and gender equity and fairness, like sometimes I don't, you know, miss that I didn't do that because I would certainly be right out there on the front lines agitating for fairness and equality. And I still do in my own way, but to have to live within that system while advocating for fairness, I could understand that really being a challenge for people and certainly taking its toll. So how do you currently right now, how is your practice? Are you practicing law right now? But then how are you balancing medicine? And then obviously we'll get into entrepreneurship. Absolutely. So what I do now is I have a position at the law school where I teach currently one semester. And then I teach a course that I created, as I told you, it started at Yale. And then I kind of like upped it, I ramped it up for law school. It's called Reproductive Rights, Medical Ethics and the Law. And as far as I know, there's no course out there that really combines that reproductive rights topic with also medical issues and doctoring and really focuses on that intersection. So I do that. And then I'm really happy to give... I've seen you've done a lot of grand rounds with that also. That's, yeah, exactly. That was what I was going to say. So then I do grand rounds and lecture to physicians about not only that topic, but also just generally issues of conformed consent. Or recently I became interested in vaccination and like, what is the story with people being like... Yeah, don't send your kid to camp, right? I was (laughs) like, what's going on here? Because so I decided to do, I didn't do the, you know, there's a lot going on there, but I just thought, what's going on here? Like, why are we making these laws and rules? And what are people concerned about? Like, why would you be concerned about this? So I got into that. So I kind of focus on different topics and work on academic pieces like writing or speaking about that. And then the bulk of my time really goes into the entrepreneurial work that is moving a company forward and making an impact on that level. So I would say that's how I spend my time now and less of like the day-to-day lawyering that I used to do. Well, since you brought that up, so you have a company called Harlan, the world's first and finest and only modern career pieces. It's really phenomenal what you've been able to do. I'm really impressed with this. Thank you so much. What's the inspiration behind Harlan? So the Harlan is a combination of my grandparents' names. They were named Harriet and Lenny, and they were lovely and amazing people. And I always thought that they had this inimitable sense of style and that they were really role models for me. They were born in Brooklyn, and then they moved out to Long Island. And Long that's Island. where, yeah, that's where my mom grew up. So they had two girls. And you have to remember that, you know, my mom was born in 1948 and my aunt, they had two girls. So my aunt was born in 1952. And this was not exactly like women's equality time. But my grandfather thought that it was so unfair that there weren't sports leagues for girls to play in that he created a sports league and he actually won, you know, like a local award for it. So they always impressed upon me the importance of education, but also that there should be gender equality, that there should be girls education, that this shouldn't be an issue at all. It was a very kind of human rights type of environment. Like, why wouldn't this be a thing? And so I didn't really grow up thinking about problems with that. I just always thought that this was expected of me. And I didn't think about obstacles. I just thought of this is what you do. And it really never kind of like the gender issue never sort of occurred to me until actually I got to college where it was more of how is it that you do math? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I mean, I don't know. I just do it. (laughs) I never really thought about it. So that's the story of the name. But Harlan came out of this very authentic need that I had when I was working at a law firm in downtown Los Angeles. And I was also teaching my class and I was carrying around 
my computer and some really heavy like casebooks and treatises, going to mediations, joining a team in court, things like along those lines. And I never felt like I had the right equipment, so to speak. You know, I needed a, basically a bag. And not only did I need a bag, I needed it to roll. Like I really needed it to be on wheels. And then I remember in 2006, I saw this article in the New York Times in the style section that said something like, you know, ouch, my bag is killing me or something like that. And I thought, why is everybody carrying around these heavy totes and bags and hurting their necks and, you know, getting whatever kind of nerve impingement or whatever's going on there. And they don't look good. Well, and that was the thing that I definitely saw some bags out there, but they were very <laughs> luggagey. And I was like, this is so ugly. <laughs> and if people remember, like I was very into whatever, it doesn't matter. But I was, you know, I'm always trying to think of like, how can this not be ugly? Which is not really the highest bar. You want to say, how can it be beautiful? So I did switch to say, how can this be the most amazing, beautiful bag of all time? And it became something that what really wasn't a bag anymore. And that's why we in the company named the Modern Career Pieces and trademark that moniker because they're different. They are this combination of a computer bag made in Italy, ready for the runway handbag meets, you know, a rolling office on wheels. So it's just everything that you would need for your workday. And we say that they are designed around women and women's lives. And quite frankly, we have a play on that they're designed for women's work. Because this is, in our view, it's not even a question that women should be at the table, women are at the table. Like, I'm not even phased by that idea. Of course, you're there. And this is what you bring to the table because you have it all put together. All of our bags stand upright. There's no slouch. There's no, where am I going to hang it? So like I said, it combines in addition to the idea of like luggage meets handbag meets computer bag, it also meets briefcase. So it's all of these kind of, you know, imagine you put them into some kind of a melting pot and that's what we came out with. And I thought it was critical to have a beautiful piece on wheels. And we have two of them currently that you can like look the look and walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, it's just the whole thing head to toe. And, you know, is it for everybody? No, it's of course not for everybody. There are some people who are like, you know, whatever, but it's for a certain group of people. And it was for somebody, people like me and the people I talked to when I was working at the firm and feeling frustrated that there wasn't that piece. And it was hard to do. Let's talk about the early days. You brought it up with being at a law firm and at the same time being able to create these material. Like that's got to be really difficult. Can you talk to us about like just being at that point, I guess, a part-time entrepreneur? What's it like, you know, creating these things? Like why did you decide to go to Italy for these things as opposed yeah. to, I know I heard in a previous interview, you were using locally sourced materials, but you decided to go overseas. Let's talk about those early days. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of trial and error, so to speak. And you know, to be fair, I started this project a long time ago before I had a child. So, you know, in my view, I mean, especially doctors, like doctors are 24 seven. And, you know, if you're doing a residency, like, you know, it's not like, oh, well, we're done at five. And then we <laughs> clock out. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of similarly, like in a law firm, you're always on. And I just decided like this was going to be part of my, you know, sleep, eat, breathe, work on your entrepreneurship, work at the firm. Like it was just going to be part of what I did. So I put that in my mind. But to get into your question, like how do you actually create this? I mean, trial and error was I hired, you know, a first consultant who didn't work, who turned out to remind me a lot of people I met at my psych rotation. I was like, wow, we've got a lot of access to here. I need to separate from this. And then another person who helped connect me with some people in Italy. And then it was a little bit of a bait and switch, like, oh, I could make these for you, but you need to set up this whole thing for me. And I'm like, I can't set up a factory for you. You know, you told me you could make these and it turns out you couldn't. 
Then I started to try to make them in Los Angeles and import materials from Italy. So I imported a number of like, you know, these amazing, beautiful zippers and the micro suede that we use, which is called Alcantara fabric, which is also hey. in Lamborghinis. I mean, it's like amazing. You got it. We really wanted the best materials, not only because they're just the finest and we think that people deserve to have the finest, but to be fair, they're also the most durable. So, you know, there is a sense of like, well, you kind of, at some point you get what you pay for. Yeah. I mean, these are incredible materials. They're all of the materials we use are made in Italy. I didn't try, I imported them. And I said, well, I'm going to find some artisans here in Los Angeles. We have a great community here and that will be what I do. At the time I had my baby already and he, you know, became a young child and I wasn't like, oh, I could just go off to Italy every minute. <laughs> right, I got it. You know, I had to like be around. So that unfortunately it didn't work. And what I learned is that you can buy and find and source the best materials and they are, but if you don't have the world's finest artisans crafting them, it doesn't work. I mean, maybe the, an analogy would be like, you can have the best surgical instruments and the best OR and the best team, but if your surgeon is really subpar, it's just not going to happen. And so that was my challenge. And I remember like one day I basically decided I had one amazing contact in Italy and I said, well, I guess I have to get on a plane. And so I went and I got on a plane and I had my one appointment. And then I was like, do you know anybody who could do this, who could help me, who could make these things? And I had my drawings and I had I'd FedExed my prototypes and they were kind of looking at them like, we could do this much, much, much better. And I was like, can you, can you please, could you help me? So it was a little like Dorothy finding the Wizard of Oz, but it, it actually was Oz. It wasn't like there was, you know, kind of a little person, man behind the curtain kind of idea. It was actually people who were the real deal who could really create and understood what I wanted to do. And frankly, we're also moved by the vision and the mission of the company, which is, to be fair, a mission about equality, a mission about women's work. And it's through our company DNA, so to speak, that we together with our clients move opportunity forward for girls worldwide by having a philanthropic partnership with an organization that is an expert in girls' education and empowerment. So it's really like a full circle. If someone buys a bag, like part of the proceeds goes to giving a child, what, free tuition for a year? And that's exactly right. It's a year of tuition. It's great. Thank you. It's a year of tuition of any fees, books, uniforms. And some people, there are data to suggest that the distance from school leads doesn't lead to, but it's associated with higher dropout rates. And some would say that there's maybe even a causal relationship there because it's too hard to get to school and you kind of give up. So point being that the organization that we partnered with also provides, if necessary, a bike for these students in their girls' education program to get to school to eliminate that barrier of, well, I can't get there, so I'm going to drop out. No, we're going to help get you there. You're going to stay in school because it matters. And we're going to empower you with mentoring and with teaching you about finances and about how to navigate through this society. And you know, the other thing that this organization does, it's called Room to Read. And it's amazing. It's not kind of coming in and we're going to tell you how to run your society. It's working with people in the community, on the ground, at the grassroots level. And I partnered with them because they're the best at what they do. They've won numerous awards. They're in charity navigators, like highest ranking for the past decade. So I wanted to find somebody who had that mission, but who could execute it amazingly. And we could rely on them for the execution. So it sounds like the early days, you kind of kissed a lot of frogs before you found your prince or <laughs> there was a lot of no's that you had to go through. Can you talk about like how oh. you were able to stay positive, how you were able to stay confident 
Did mentorship help along during this way, during the early process of building your company? Can you talk about that? I love how you just said like kissing frogs. That's just the greatest, you know, idea. (laughs) I heard at one point a talk by Ariana Huffington, and she said that she sort of views her life as she's kind of on this path. And then there are little animals along the side of the path. And, you know, sometimes they help her out. And then sometimes she needs to keep moving. And she just sort of sees, or at least in this speech, she was talking about how she sees her life as she's on the path. And then there are people or people around her who can help her move forward. And, you know, I think what you're saying is exactly right. It's just, you have to keep going. And I had a vision. I had a real vision of what I wanted the product to be. Because, you know, to be fair, somebody handed me like a prototype and they're like, here, this is it. And I was like, no, 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 that is not, no, that is not it. So it was just, I had this vision in my head and I was really, I don't know, I guess if you want to have a negative word, you could say stubborn. If you want to have a positive word, you could say like grit, you know, you could get into kind of that, the book about grit and, you know, growth mindset, Carol Dweck, you know, you could go there. I was just like, this has to be done. This needs to be done and I'm going to do it. And that's that. So I didn't really think about it. I just kept moving and kept doing it. And I kept my eyes on the prize, so to speak. And that was it. You know, I'm really interested because obviously you have spent some time at some point in New York. You're in Los Angeles. They all have like their quote unquote bootleg section and stuff, right? Do you ever think that like you've made it when like your stuff gets bootlegged? Like, do you ever be like, <laughs> I just see like, a lawsuit. I don't you know. You know, like you got like fake Louis Vuitton pieces or fake this. Like, would you ever be uh, like, wow, like they're actually like bootlegging my stuff? Like, is that the epitome of success right there? <laughs> oh man, that's so awesome. Yeah, you're like, well, we just seized, you know, millions of dollars from this other, you know, whatever. That would definitely be interesting. That would definitely, you know, keep our outside counsel employed for a long, long time. I think, of course, what do they say? Like, imitation is the best form of flattery yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I don't think that certainly would be like a moment to kind of note, you know, like people are like, we started our business and here's our first dollar and we put it on the wall kind of thing. Like it would definitely be like one of those moments. But we're just thrilled when, you know, clients love our pieces and they feel like empowered by them. Some people have said that, like they feel like they're ready to walk into that room and that they're not only is everything organized and they can find everything because the interiors of our pieces are meticulously organized with spaces for your computer and your keys and your business cards and your phone and your tablet and your wallet and all of those things. You can find everything. They also feel like, you know, they look the part and they're ready to go and to, you know, basically like kick ass at whatever they're doing and they're empowered to do that. So yeah, we always are happy when the people who we are aiming to support in their lives are happy and that they feel like we've improved their lives in some small way. That's definitely the goal. So, you know, you've been involved with some really big cases. I saw some of the cases that you've defended in the past. And obviously, you've been through medical school and obviously law school and so forth. Is there anything in entrepreneurship that scares you or scares you in a way that's different than just pure law or medicine? Well, the thing about entrepreneurship that's really hard is that it's just, I think, completely unknown is, I think, a fair thing to say. Because you really never know. And I think there are words along this line in like the you know biography of Steve Jobs, just talking about like, you don't know how it's going to be, how it's going to play out. I think as a business, you always have to be staying relevant. Whereas in law, it's like, it's a little, you know, stay, staying relevant means like knowing all the precedents. So it's kind of like the opposite of that. You know, you have to know what came before you as opposed to in business, you always want to like look ahead and do something different and keep it fresh and keep it moving, keep it relevant. And I think that that's like certainly different than in medicine. You need to keep up with the standard of care, but you're not creating the standard of care necessarily. I mean, maybe if you're doing like, well, I had this 
New England Journal of Medical Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine piece. And that really set the stage. Okay, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. But I mean, you're not like making an entirely new thing and saying yeah. like, this is the latest, greatest. Like there's a standard that you have to meet. So, you know, of course, in my business, we are, you know, handcrafting in Italy and we're using these you know, people who've been doing this for their families have been doing this for generations. So that's that piece of it. But from the entrepreneurial piece, so obviously you need your product to be completely dialed in and that has to be. But in creating a brand, you're always thinking about relevance, about staying fresh, about new and about who are you? What is your message? What do you stand for? You know, it a little bit like kind of reminds me of Lin-Manuel and his Hamilton lyric, like, if you stand for nothing, you know, what do you fall for? So Mm -hmm. I think you have to come up with who are you and how are you going to lead and what do you take a stand about? And we take a stand about, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, the finest materials and getting these amazing pieces into people's hands and celebrating who they are, that these are extraordinary women and they should be celebrated and they belong at the table. And I'm not even having a question about it. So the fact that there's even an issue is like, you know, I'm over it. I don't want to even, I just want them to be there. So I think it's really different in that way. But there are definitely similarities. You want to, I think in everything you do, when you're a doctor, you want to do your best with every patient. You want to do your best for every patient. You want to be the best for your colleagues. And it's certainly the way I practice law and the way the firms that I was at practiced law when the firm that I'm currently affiliated with practice law, you, you want to be absolutely no question at the top of your game. And that means keeping up with technology, not just keeping up with the law itself. So, you know, I think the through line is that just bringing your A game and bringing something new and seeing things with fresh eyes. Certainly when I was at Munger Tools and Olson, the Los Angeles firm, I felt like I was very entrepreneurial about you know, really working on cases that I wanted to work on because I felt like I could bring something unique, a unique perspective to that case or to the matter. And I'm always thinking about adding value. How can I add value, add value, add value? So, you know, to me, that's really the through line is to create something new and be the best, absolutely the best that you can be. And I think, like I said, the thing about entrepreneurship is things can change, markets can change, tastes can change. You can make like a wrong move and then you have to, you know, certainly in in my field, in the luxury community there, you can think of brands that have kind of put something out in the market that you're like, whoa, you needed to have some legal counsel or cultural counsel about that product. Like that was a bad move. And so you have to deal with things like that. But I think if you keep your eye on absolutely performing at the highest level, then it takes you very far. Mm, I love it. Well, look, we're going to go into our fast fire segment. I'm going to ask you some questions. You just tell already? Me oh man. Okay. You just tell me what comes off the top of your head. All right. You ready? Okay. Oh, my gosh. I'm nervous. So if you were to take all the information, all the knowledge that you have right now, if you're able to go back and talk to yourself as a medical student, what kind of advice would you have given yourself? That is a great question. What kind of advice would I give myself? Just keep going. Just move forward. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Move forward. I mentioned this before in the broadcast, but there's The Handmaid's Tale and there's that line. For those of you who watched it on Hulu or read the book, like, don't let the bastards get you down. Just kind of that. <laughs> like, just, just keep moving. Just You know, maybe I would have had that like made in Latin as a bracelet and just kind of kept that real close to my heart, you know, my wrist, so to speak. So, yeah, I think just that, like, just keep moving. And I had great, great friends and great support throughout. And so I think that gets you through. You have to have great support because it's hard. I mean, whether it's like getting up at four in the morning and taking the bus to the VA, which, yes, that's what I did. That's physically hard. 
There's the emotional heart of people just not being nice, which I don't even get. And then there's the heart of having patients who you really care for and care about and are, you know, trying to do, obviously you're doing your best work that they have an outcome that, you know, you or your team, obviously as a medical student, you're not, you know, determining outcomes, but you're on a team where things just they go wrong and it's really hard emotionally. So I just think you have to like keep your eyes on the horizon in a sense and just stay the course. So I think that would be the focus. Is there any figures out there that you find inspirational? Is there anybody that you wouldn't mind trading places for just for 24 hours? Uh, There's nobody I would trade places for because I am perfectly content and really happy with everything that's going on right now. So I don't have that kind of feeling, but I would like to meet people. And there are so many great people out there and people who I've worked with on their causes. You know, but right now I just love where I live. I love the work that we're doing at Harlan to bring what we do to bring these products to the table and celebrate that Italian artistry, support women, support girls. But, you know, there are certainly places to go and people to see and things to do. And the hard thing is, like, you can't be everywhere at once. Like, you can't be at the New Yorker Festival, teach your class, pick up your child from school, make dinner. You know what I mean? Like, there's just not enough time in a day. So I try to... Which That's a good point. It actually leads me to my next question, because I'm like, there's no such thing as balance, right? Or, I mean, it's really hard to do that. Like, if you're able to balance it, how are you able to do it? If not, like, what kind of life hacks are you using to be productive and keep everything in check? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I guess there's somebody who came up with that idea, but I just think it's such a not helpful paradigm. Like if you think about I'm supposed to have balance, like I just end up feeling really badly all the time. Like I'm just like, wow, what a paradigm that is. Who thought of that? So I don't even think that's a thing. I mean, obviously it's a thing, but it doesn't even resonate with me because it's so just divorced from like reality in my view. I mean, especially if you've ever been a primary caretaker of a child, like I don't know what people think that means. I mean, honestly, like, have you had an infant? Do you know what we're talking about here? Like, and this idea also in American culture of working 24 seven, like who thought that was a good idea? You know, I love working with Italy and people in Italy because for example, like they take August off and I am not kidding. They like lock the door, the phones are off, the email done August. And like, if you're like, oh no, I'm going to be a gunner and work through August. It's like, what are you even doing? You're working by yourself. It's not like this American, like, wow, you're really, I don't know, motivated or it's like, you're just an outlier because that's not what we do. So it's so nice to work with people who have a different outlook on life and a different culture, because it gives you such perspective of like, this isn't the only way. There's not really one way to lead your life. And you have to get kind of out of your silo and say, you know, I'm just going to reject this paradigm. I am absolutely rejecting it. and I'm going to do it differently. And I realize I do appreciate that if you're, for example, in academia and you're striving for tenure, that is an important goal for you that you can't like reject the paradigm. But you can leave and just say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and do this my own way. And I don't need your kind of, you know, antiquated paradigm. I'm not doing it that way. And but yeah, I think that whole work-life balance thing is, I think it's painful, I think, because I think it sort of sets you up to fail because what are you supposed to be balancing every minute or this idea of juggling? And I've heard people say, oh, it's like juggling pieces of, you know, like crystal and then you drop them. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to feel like I'm dropping crystal. That's like rude. I don't need that. So, you know, I just really, I mean, no. So I just focus on staying organized, staying day to day, you know, working on enough projects that I feel like I have, you know, I'm motivated. I have things that are being done that need to be done, but trying to find that spot where I'm not overwhelmed. You know what I mean? Like you're like, oh, I'm going to take on more stuff, but then all of a sudden you're kind of crushed by the overwhelm. So I don't want to do that. But I just try to think like what works for me? 
and what makes sense for me and what do I want to do with my day? And, and to be fair, you know, I work in a very entrepreneurial mode. I'm not really part of these kind of hierarchies right now. Or so I don't have that pressure of like, who's above me, who's below me, who's judging me, who's going to tell me that I'm okay. So I just really focus on, like I said, doing the absolute best job, bringing the A game and staying focused on that horizon. Well said. I love it. I love that's a great answer. Well said. So this is a sentence that I want you to complete. I ask this to all of my guests. It's, I'm not just a doc. I'm a... I'm not just a doc. I'm a lawyer. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a mother. And I'm an advocate. Boom. I love it. Well, look, Dr. Julie Cantor. Dr. This was a Darko, great, it was amazing was to be here. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was a great time. We learned a lot about you. Very unique, not similar to you know any of my other guests. So I think this was really a great opportunity for me to learn also, as well as for the audience to learn. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was so generous of you to have me. You know, I realize there are many docs outside the box and it's an honor to be part of that group. 